0: Good morning, everybody. Hope you're having a a wonderful day. We are in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to look at this topic of Noah, lessons in trusting God. I was privileged to be on vacation a few weeks ago, and I actually had on vacation the opportunity to spend a lot of time in this text as I sat looking at the turquoise waters in St. Martin. Uh, and it was, someone has to do it, you know, suffering, suffering for God. Um, but Pastor was just in the Grand Cayman, so, you know, but it is interesting, as I fill the pulpit here for when he's coming back from vacation, let's see, I got Genesis 3, the fall, and now I get Genesis 6, the flood, some of the fun passages, I kid, we're going to look at it together, but I want to ask you the question, Is there a time where it's hard to trust God in your life? We would certainly say that there are circumstances, events, things that don't always add up, and we have to trust God for who He is. This might be one of those passages because this is an event in Scripture that may cause you to say, why did God do this? And you're kind of scratching your head. Clearly, the new atheists look at passages like, the Genesis flood account and level criticisms at how could you love or serve a God who destroys all of mankind? And in fact, on face value, as you look at the text, maybe some of you have questioned God's word and wondered, how did this all come together and how does this make sense for us today? And so, just like Noah had to trust God for a pretty remarkable set of time in his life. I think we have some principles. In fact, we'll land this plane today with four principles that you can take away today as it relates to how do you trust God when it doesn't make sense, when it's hard, when things maybe don't completely add up for us. Let's look at the text together. Heavenly Father, may we look at your word in ways with new eyes today in Jesus name. Amen. All right, let's jump in. Get to your notes. Here's uh, the character of Noah is found in Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 to 10. Let me read it for you. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, circle that word, eyes of the Lord. Because that idea is something that's not foreign to the Old Testament. In fact, Second Chronicles 16.9, write it down. Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose hearts are completely His. And just as in Noah's day, God is looking for those of us whose hearts are completely His. Well, what is the character of that kind of person? I think there are four attributes that we see in Noah's life right off the bat. First of all, it says he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, he was blessed. He was blessed. Noah experienced God's unmerited favor just like we experience God's unmerited favor by his grace if you have a relationship with him. Now, you're asking, where does this happen in the timeline of human history? If ground zero is Adam and Eve, this is about 1,650 years later. Now, notice in these two chapters, Noah doesn't object to what God calls him to do. He doesn't even talk in these Uh, two chapters. In fact, on the other hand, in these four chapters, Scott will cover the next two next week, uh, God gives four speeches. Now, it says he was blessed with three sons. Why is that important? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Most people think that Shem's the oldest, uh, and he will be the line in which Messiah will come. So, if you are looking at the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, you'll see uh, that line, the Messianic line that was promised way back in Genesis that there would be a Redeemer, a Messiah that would come, that's going to come through the line of Shem. And in fact, uh, the descendants of Shem will ultimately be uh, Abram, uh, and his name will be changed to Abraham in Genesis chapter 10. All right. Then Ham and Japheth are the other two. Now, people say, well, who are these people? I won't get into what where they went, but I'll show you their where they probably settled Uh, we think that probably ham ends up going towards africa Um, japheth goes to europe shem goes to asia but the whole world is going to be resettled. Now, I'm going to address a topic at the end, but I want to let you know that I am going to address it, so I'm going to mention it now, because some of you are saying, isn't this just an allegory? Is this a historical event? I'm going to take the position this is a historical event. It's not allegory. It's not symbolic. And I believe that it is a global flood, not a local flood. And generally speaking, if you believe that this is a global flood, you believe in a young earth view of creation. If you think it's a local flood, you're going to say it, uh, take on a, a position of an old earth creation. If that doesn't make sense to you, talk to me later. There's lots written on both of that. I just want you to know we will address that in just a moment. So Shem, Ham and Japheth are the three kids. Now, second characteristic, he was righteous. He believed. He believed. In fact, Hebrews eleven seven says this, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. New Testament writers believe that the flood was a real thing. It's a historical event. He was righteous. But that righteousness isn't because he's a good guy. It's based on his faith. He believed, and in fact, he's going to do some things that he had never seen. He's building this big boat. He's going to ask, "Why am I building a big boat?" He's never seen rain. It's going to be raining, uh, and I'm sure it caused his neighbors to question whether or not Noah kind of had all of his marbles. He's building this big thing because, he, and he's telling his neighbors, "Well, God says there's going to be a big event. Uh, there's going to be a flood it's, that's going to flood the world." And they're going, "Uh huh." Yeah. Now, can you imagine what it must have been like with those, that family uh, building this ark? And some of you who might be a bit more skeptical saying, how, how did that play out? Well, I can imagine that, that maybe Noah's considered by his culture kind of that family. Now, I don't watch a lot of this, the, this kind of television, but there is this show about these Alaska bush people, and it says they're, they're survivalists. And they, have you seen the show? I don't know the name of it. it Seem like they're nice folks just a little odd, though. I mean, if I'm just asking, I'm trying not to judge, but, you know, they kill and eat things and make things out of nothing, and, you know, it's kind of an interesting deal if they survive in the Alaska bush. Well, maybe Noah's kind of perceived as kind of odd for God. I'm not sure, but uh, it's, he believed. He believed, and over a hundred years, as they're building and constructing the ark, I'm sure he had opportunity to talk about what was going on. I'll show you this in the next verse here. Thirdly, he was blameless. He was blameless in his generation. That doesn't mean he was perfect or sinless. And in fact, 2 Peter 2.5 says this, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, his life is a reminder to his culture that there is a God and something's going to happen. And for a hundred years, he's proclaiming the fact that there's a God who is going to bring judgment. And every Nail that goes by the hammer, and by it probably wasn't nails. That was probably some kind of wooden dowels. Um, they're pounding every every pound into that wood is a, a constant reminder to his culture that something is about to happen. And I'm sure, as a herald of righteousness, he opened his mouth. The fourth thing that he is described as is he walked with God. He is beloved. He's beloved. So, uh, who else walked with God? We've seen this before, haven't we? Yeah, Enoch walked with God. Who else walked with God? Adam and Eve, right. So, we've seen this communal relationship with, with the eternal created God. Thank you, Pastor, for remembering. It's always good. But he was beloved. All right, And so, he's blessed, he's, he believed, he was blameless, he was beloved. Those are the character qualities of a guy called Noah. Here's where it gets a little dicey. Let's go to the next section. The corruption of mankind, verses 11 to 13. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. You can't just read that flippantly, friends. That should make your heart sink. Yeah? Because the plight of the earth is such that God gives us the purpose of the flood in these verses. Let me suggest to you, the first is to eliminate mankind, the created. And then he's going to decimate the earth, the creation. Eliminate and decimate. Now, believe me, the new atheists have had a heyday with us, Dawkins, with the God delusion, and uh, Hitchens. If you're reading that stuff, you're realizing that they, he is going for the jugular, accusing Christians of blindly trusting a God who seems like he's a homicidal maniac. And if you've read that stuff, it may disturb you. But i got to tell you, there's some answers, and I'm, I'm going to get there, but I want to lay the groundwork. Let's just say this. These kinds of questions, like how could God destroy an entire planet, is part of a larger question, and that is evil and suffering in the world. And this is a subcategory of those kinds of questions. For those of you who believe that God isn't big enough to do a global flood, which we'll talk about in a minute, that's a subset of another set of questions. That is, do you believe in the supernatural that God can do what he says, when he does it, and how he does it, and with who he does it, or do we put God in a smaller box? And so if you start with an anti-supernaturalistic presupposition, you will always question the motives of a loving and merciful God. Because you don't believe that that kind of God exists. So your view of him is always going to be a smaller, man-scaled version of who the God of all creation really is. And so the purpose of the flood was to eliminate mankind and decimate the earth. But why? Because of the propensity of sin. The earth is corrupt in ways that we can't fathom. We can't fathom. And when sin runs rampant in a culture, and when it goes unchecked, there is going to be consequences. Now you say, well, what was so bad about the culture that it goes south in such a way? Most historians believe that part of what was going on here was cannibalism. Child sacrifice was rampant. Kids would be born and almost executed immediately. Murder and theft was a a way of life, and so God's looking down on what's going on, and if He doesn't intervene, mankind, as we know it, will be decimated. Secondly, as we know from previous sermons, that this messianic line, Satan's going to do anything he can so the line of Messiah will be distorted or destroyed. So you say, what's an illustration of that? Well, let's say you have diabetes and you get gangrene in your toes and it moves up your ankle, up your leg. The doctor's going to tell you there's no way we can save you if we don't amputate at the knee. And you have your your leg cut off, but it saves your life. I think God in, in his own way is looking at the earth and saying, I've got to cut the gangrene off because we've got to save mankind. Sin hurts people, friends. Sin has consequences. And oftentimes when sin raises its its ugly head, uh, people are hurt, innocently hurt. Some people have had, so, but what about the kids? Well, first of all, remember the children, the babies, haven't reached the age of innocence. And so, any of those kids that are lost in the flood, I think ultimately God will show mercy to. But sin does have its consequences, and innocent people are hurt. Someone came to me after the first hour and said, aren't the remaining people on the earth the sons of Cain, which we know from uh, previous chapters that Cain did not follow the Lord. We don't know exactly, but we know that earth at that point is in serious trouble. Now, let's look at the command to Noah in chapter 6, verses 14 through the first part of chapter 7. Let's look at the construction of the ark. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. We don't know what this is. We don't know whether it's cedar or pine. We don't know much about what gopher wood is. But he says, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch, some kind of a tar material. This is how you are to make it. The length should be 300 cubits, breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a a roof or a skylight for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. How many of you have been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky? Anybody been there? Only two people out of three surfaces ever been there. Gary Rafferty's been there. Talk to Gary. Uh, I'm taking my grandkids to this exhibit sometime. It's sister deal is the Creation um, uh, Museum is out there, too. But they've done amazing work at trying to to recreate what this ark might have looked like. Now, what is interesting, that word ark, have you seen that word before? And it's not the same word as the ark of the covenant, but that word ark means tebah, T-E-B-A-H, or box. It's only used two times in all of the Old Testament. The other times in Exodus 2, 3, and this is remarkable, this little floating box that that Noah made, it's also used of something for somebody else, remember? For Moses, Moses' little floating basket. Isn't that so cool that in these two instances, the ark and a basket are to preserve and save life? God provides for his own. And that's exactly what God did when he told Noah to build this big ark. Now, Uh, A cubit is about 18 inches from your elbow to your middle finger here. About 18 inches is how they measure a cubit. So if we did that measurement, this is 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. It's a six-to-one ratio, and we found many, many years later, that's an optimal uh, length-to-width ratio for boats today. They are 6-to-one or 8-to-one, and there's 95,700 uh, square feet of deck space, that's 20 college basketball courts, um, f- uh, 1.5 million cubic feet, uh, that's 1,000 standard railroad cars. I mean, I can go on with, geek you out with all the statistics, but you can look it up for yourselves, all right? Gross tonnage was jihugic, I'll leave it at that number. And the bottom line is, some people said, well, that's, that's such a big piece of material, Why can't we find it today? Some people think they've seen sightings on Mount Ararat. Uh, That's in Turkish territory today, and the Turkish government has not allowed expeditions for a number of years. So we saw the purpose of the flood, all right? But what was the purpose of the ark? Twofold, to preserve a remnant of mankind and to protect two of every kind of animal, as well as seven pairs of animals that would be ultimately used for the sacrificial system under Moses. Now, it took uh, a 100-plus years to build this ark. Did he do all the work by himself with his boys? Did they have hired hands and laborers? We don't know, but it's quite the project. Now, i got to imagine that they're like any other family. Can you imagine what it must have been like for these three boys working for their crazy dad, Noah? We're going to build a boat, boys. They're going, okay, why? Because there's going to be a flood. What do you mean a flood? Well, because it's going to rain. Well, what is rain, right? You know, it goes on and on, and they're working, and I'm sure they didn't get along. Imagine when Noah says, uh, you know, I need four cubic cut here, you know, and, you know, someone thought he said 14 foot, and that's the wrong cut, and Shem, what are you thinking? I said 14. Dad, you said 40. No, Shem, you didn't get it right. And then, of course, Mrs. Noah comes in, don't talk to your father, right? You know, and so I don't know. I have imagined that they probably got into it because I can't imagine everything went smoothly. I did a house remodel and it was record time, right? Any of you have done a remodel? Nothing goes exactly as planned. And so imagine a hundred years of this though. You think your kitchen remodel took a long time. My goodness. And so they're building this ark and there's a covenant established in verses 17 and 18. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which there is breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But, verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. The key idea is they're going to start over. God's pressing the reset button, it's a do over and he's going to start over with Noah, and through Shem will be this messianic line that will trace all the way to the Messiah. Now, I should mention at this point, you know, there's over 200 different versions of flood stories and cultures historically. You've heard of the Gilgamesh epic and the Sumerians and the Babylonians. All I want to say about that is something happened. Because nearly every ancient culture references this kind of epic event. And I'll leave it at that. The covering of the animals in verses 19 to 22. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of everything. And and you can read through that. But what's interesting to me is at the end of verse 20, and two of everything shall come into you to keep them alive. And take with you, verse 21, every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, and this is a phrase you're going to see repeated again. What is it? He did all that God commanded him. He's obedient. Those animals came to him. Now, people want to question that part of of the ark story. And again, I want to remind you, if we have a God who creates the heavens and earth, if your God is big enough, He can solve this animal problem that some of the skeptics want to bring. Now, if you're looking at the size of the animals, etc., uh, Chuck Smith says this, former pastor at Calvary Chapel, he said, there are 1,359 animals that are smaller than the size of a rat. So, that's a, a big chunk of what's going to be on the ark. Number two, Notice the animals came to Noah. He wasn't chasing them. I think that would be pretty hilarious. Ham, go get the kangaroos. And he's chasing kangaroos around there. Come on, and wrangling, you know, dogs and cats. And oh, my goodness. But they came to him. Number three, food's probably not a problem. These animals are generally vegetarians. Now, we do need to deal with apex predators that, you know, want to eat sheep for lunch. And so I think God had to intervene in that. The other thing is probably there's some kind of hibernation thing going on that they hibernate. We know that bears hibernate. So God could just go night-night and they sleep for a year. We don't know for sure. The other thing is that probably they didn't bring in full-grown animals. Maybe they were baby animals that would then grow into maturity. And then the last thing is Every species of animal seems to be the indication in the text, not every kind of dog, but dogs as a representation of all dogs, all right? The cooperation of Noah in verses 1 through 5 in chapter 7 comes next. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And then he mentions to take seven pairs of every kind of these certain kinds of animals, these clean animals. What is that about? Well, those are the animals that will ultimately be used for sacrifice in the sacrificial system that is going to be instituted later uh, with Noah and the children of Israel. Then he says in uh, verse 4, "...for in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights." And then I'm going to blot out everything on the face of the earth. And then verse 5, there it is again. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. We see nothing else is Noah is obedient, isn't he? Now, Noah's character and his obedience are affirmed. He's told to enter the ark for seven days. I want to suggest to you that the ark is going to always be a symbol of salvation. Flood is a symbol of judgment. And so, notice, Noah is saved by his position in the ark, just like we are saved by our position in Christ. It's not what we've done that saves us if you are a Christ follower. It's what Christ did on the cross, who died for you and purchased a place in heaven, and that if you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, that's what saves you. And so, that salvation is based on what Christ does, not what we do. Now, I did... I got to tell you, I I had a lot of time to reflect on this passage. In fact, for seven days, I sat out, you know, looking at the ocean kind of by myself. It was a beautiful time, and the mind wanders. And I got onto this little rabbit trail, which another day, I'll tell you all the cool stuff, I found out about the word, the number 40. But just to suffice to say, there's a lot of 40s in the Bible, right? Moses is 40 years in the desert, right, after he kills the Egyptian. Uh, 40 lashes was given to someone, and they said, if you went beyond that, uh, 40 lashes should take you out. The spies were in the land for 40 days. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days before David stepped up. So, this word 40 is a big deal. Well, now we see this catastrophic flood that's going to be predicted in chapter 7, verses 6 to 24. We'll look at the occupants on the inside And then we'll look at the ordeal on the outside. Now, I know it's kind of heavy thinking about mankind and destroying the whole earth. And so with a little levity, what must it have been like to go into the flood here? Uh, What was it like? Let's look at this first picture. A 40-day cruise, just the two of us without the kids. Oh, Harold, this will be the best vacation ever. I hope it doesn't rain. (laughs) And then need an ark? I know a guy. I know. What a ding. (laughs) I thought the limit was two. The elephant's looking at all the rabbits that had multiplied on day 39. And then lastly, hey, maybe I shouldn't have brought those termites. (laughs) Ah, groaner. There you go. All right. So, if you look at this section of Scripture, verses 6 to 9 and verses 13 to 16 represent the occupants on the inside. And then the ordeal on the outside is verses 10 through 12, and then verses 17 to 24. So, I'm going to read those in conjunction. I won't read all of it, but how old is Noah when this finally happens? He's 600 years old when the floods came. And then verse 7 says, Noah and his sons and his wife, his sons and wives with him, went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And it recapitulates this again about how they entered the ark, and God's very clear that this happened. He repeats himself a couple of times. Now, what's interesting is there's very exact dates, and I can show you a chart if you want to see it, exactly when it happened, what month, and how long this whole thing lasts, depending on who you read. It's 378 days, all right? It's a long time they're going to be on the ark, over a year. But there's something interesting that happened. When we were looking at the the ancient patriarchs a few weeks ago, who's the guy who lived the longest? Methuselah, how many years? 969 years, oldest man who ever lived, all right? Most uh, commentators look at this and believe that Methuselah died on the day that Noah entered the ark. God had preserved his life, and his name literally means when he dies, it shall come. Ooh, that's pretty cool. Now, something else is interesting. They go in the ark, but it doesn't start raining immediately. How long does it take before the rain comes and everything goes crazy? Seven days. What is the length of time that in Hebrew culture there was the appropriate time of mourning after someone died? Seven days. days. I don't know. I think God is giving us little clues about his omnipotence and his, his loving care over every detail of this story. And so, that's what happens. Now, there's this ordeal outside of the ark. And after seven days, the waters of flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. If this was just allegory, why is God being so specific about the historical dates as he's documenting it for us here? Now, It came, and it came, and it came, and it covers the earth. Verse 20 says it prevailed above the mountains, covering them 22, 15 cubits, or 22, almost 23 feet deep above the highest mountain. Everything on dry land is obliterated. It is covered, and it prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Now, how many of you thought we got a lot of rain last winter? Yeah, not so much compared to this text, right? I thought, um, I became a true Minnesotan when we moved there uh, back um, in the 90s. And in 1991, we got 31 inches of snow on one Halloween night. And uh, that's a lot of snow. If anybody's ever, that, I mean, that's like, Not rain, but it's snow, and I'm telling you, there are eight foot drifts. We were snowed in. Kids were loving life because there was a snow day. California kids didn't know what snow days. We have like you know smog alert days and fire days, but we don't. They didn't have snow days, right? And um, but nothing compares to this deal, right? Nothing compares to how much uh, rain descends on the earth now. This is where I want to just take a brief moment and talk to you about these two views of Scripture, whether it's a global uh, kind of universal over the entire earth flood, or is it a local one where just people live, but not the entire earth? Again, I've said the global view is held by those of us who are young earth creationists. Both Scott and I take that position. Um, The local view uh, is generally held by old earth creationists. It fits with their worldview about the age of the earth. I'm trying not to be too technical here, but you need to understand this. There are good people on both sides of this equation. I think uh, guys like Ken Ham and, and the Creation Science Institute and Henry Morris and others would be on that global end of that discussion. The local proponents would be a guy, you've heard his name. He's very Uh, good persuasive uh, guy by the name of Hugh Ross, Bernard Ram and others. So I don't want to get too much into this, but I just want to say there's arguments on both sides. Here's why I believe in a global entire earth flood. Number one, uh, every culture has some flood discussion. I mean, 200 of them, not every culture, has a catastrophic story about a flood. I don't think that's coincidental. This is no ordinary flood. If you look at the text very carefully, three things are happening at the same time. Rain is coming down from beneath the earth. It says this reservoir of water came up through the ground. And I think A protective water canopy that probably protected the environment and was part of why people didn't age so quickly, that burst. So it's a kind of a three way split going on here, and the floodgates of heaven are open, and forever after that point, the atmospheric conditions on earth are forever changed. I believe that's why the age of people dropped dramatically after the flood. People don't live as long after the flood. Water seeks its own, oh, by the way, if it's just a local flood, why does it take over a year for the waters to dissipate if it's just a localized flood? Also, water seeks its own level. It's a big, bigger miracle if entire mountains in the local area are covered, uh, but lowlands and other parts of the earth aren't touched. How does that happen? Then, also, Jesus' re- uh, return is compared to the flood, and that Jesus' return is a global event. Let me read it to you from Matthew 24, verse 37. For as it were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so so will be the coming of the Son of Man." So anyway, those are just some of my reasons, there's many more for why I believe it's a global event. Those who would take in giving just a, a few minutes to that a, a, a local localized flood or uh, what they call a tepid flood is they would want to s- suggest that the mountains are too high you can't do this, etc. I would answer that the mountain heights, you know, how do we know what they were pre-flood, right? we do know what they are today, but we we don't know. They would say there's no scientific evidence in the fossil record. Others would argue against that. Some, they would say, well, what happened to all that water? Well, where did all the water come from to begin with back in Genesis 1? And they have some problems with land masses and continents and were they one or not, all that. So, all I'm saying is the bottom line is there are answers to those questions, but it comes back to What do you believe about who God is? And that's why I want to get to the the real meat of where we're landing this plane this morning with these four principles about God and about life. Because in the end, the flood story is a story that's a big one. And there are those of us who ache for thinking about people dying and how could God allow that to happen? And I want to suggest four th- principles to think about in relationship to all that. First of all, Noah obeyed in spite of, not because of. He had to trust God. That's the essence of faith. If you want to hear a fantastic treatment on what faith is, listen to Bill Berry's sermon from last week. It's Just listen to that. It's good stuff. Noah obeyed in spite of the consequences to him personally. What if Noah had refused the assignment? We're not doing this. This is crazy. Work on strike. I want higher wages. Right? I got to believe that Noah's ridiculed. I got to believe that over, as a herald of righteousness, the culture just demeaned him. And sometimes as you stand for God, you will be demeaned. You will be accused. You will be harassed. Number two, sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences consequences. And our physical world, the environment we live in, bears the scars of, this, of the moral world. For those of you who can't reconcile the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, by the way, that's a term that was, is coined by atheists. They want to separate and bifurcate our view of who God is. Check this book out, God Behaving Badly. All right? Just check that book out, and it'll answer some of those questions. Thirdly, God only brings judgment after warning. God only brings judgment after warning. This is the last warning that they're going to get. There's been a hundred plus years of warning, Noah building the ark. God, they could have repented. He was a herald of righteousness. He is just. But think of all the times in the Bible where God brings a prophet to warn people. He brings Jonah to who? The Ninevites, the Assyrians, the most hated enemy of Israel. He didn't even want to do it, and they repented. Jeremiah brings judgment warning to Israel. He doesn't ambush people. I was talking about this concept with Ryan Shoden, who's a, is a police officer. I said, so how can a loving police officer give us humans tickets? <laughs> I know it's a stretch, but work with me here. And he said, I said, so how do you do that? I mean, because I know you don't get, you know, you love giving tickets. He goes, well, here's what I do. Well, if I'm on the freeway, they're driving, and I'm following them, and I get behind them, and I'm thinking, Look in your rearview mirror. I'm right here. Slow down. You're going to get a ticket. This is going to end badly for you. No, you speed up and pass someone and almost cause an accident. And I finally got to pull you over and give you a ticket. Friends, God's more loving than a cop who really doesn't want to give you a ticket. But he's got to. He's got to. And so as you think about that, the last thing is that we're saved because of our position in Christ. We don't have an angry, judgmental, vengeful God. We have a merciful God. You notice you're saved not because of your personality, your position, or your persuasiveness, or your planning. Write this down. Noah was saved by where he was, not just who he was. He was saved by God's provision Because that is always based on our position. God's provision is always based on our position. And our position is that we are seated with Christ. We are saved by Christ. We have people from all walks of life here in this church today. Some of you are skeptics. Some of you are seekers. Some of you are Christians. Some of you are wrestling with your faith. But here's the good news of the gospel that has never changed. It hasn't changed one bit. And that is, God offers forgiveness, mercy, kindness, and you're saved because of who Christ is, your position in Christ, that you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And because of that assurance, you have Christ in your future and in your eternity. And so, when we get Stuck with passages like this where it seems like, wow, that's heavy. And how could God do this? And really all of mankind and all the questions that cause us to wonder and doubt. And the big picture is hard to get our head around. And the complexity of it causes us to have our faith stretched. I just want to remind you today That God loves you. He wants relationship with you. And he has good things for you. Amen? Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. It's a tough text, we admit. But we thank you, God, that you give us insight and wisdom. And may we trust the God that is loving and kind, who saved us and lavishes us with love that's, quite frankly, reckless. Thank you for that kind of love. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, that is the perfect song to end this message with because it is that reckless love of God that is pursuing you. We have some folks in here who would love to pray with you. And if you've never, ever made that commitment to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, I'd love to talk to you, Scott. We'd love to talk to you about that. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.